Welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Massa's Restaurants, five locations in St. Louis. More sponsors coming on board. We'll talk about them later because I need to get right to my guest. It is none other than Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. Hello, Brad. Where do we find you today? Where, where can people uh, know? What are you, Where in the world is Bob Costas today? People need the coordinates, do they, just in case they plan on stopping by? Give me the longitude and latitude, please. Somewhere in Manhattan on the west side. Okay. Not Manhattan, Kansas. <clears throat> no one should ever find themselves stuck in Manhattan, Kansas. I've been there, actually. Unless they're going to Kansas State and have good reason to be there. Yes, that's a good point. Now, I don't want to say you're retired, but you're in sort of this twilight. You do a lot of MLB Network stuff. I actually, I mean, I don't know if I can say this. Uh, we're a co- we're colleagues. Are are we colleagues? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, we work on MLB Network showcase games. But uh, so that honestly, that's a thrill, and that's all I really need to say about uh, that. But um, you're doing a lot of MLB Network showcase games. I think you do all of them. You do some other MLB Network stuff. Uh, but would you would you call this kind of the twilight and semi retirement, or what? What would you call your stage of this career? I would say that this year baseball is all that I'm doing, but. Next year or shortly thereafter, I'll be doing other things that are more in line with some of the stuff I used to do a while back at NBC and at HBO. Uh, there wasn't much of that left for me at NBC. Um, so between that and the fact that they haven't had baseball since 2000 and they haven't had the NBA since 2002, it just made sense to close out that very long and happy chapter in my career and devote whatever time I have left professionally to doing only the things that matter most to me, which would be baseball and some journalism and some long-form interviews. I am curious because we did actually get a chance uh, the first time we talked on this podcast some three years ago, uh, and it was when you were still actually hosting the NFL Sunday night um, broadcast and you were doing essays at halftime. And at that point we had an interesting conversation and then everything kind of changed and you did a, a thing with, uh, outside the lines. So I'm just curious, is your relationship with NBC, is that, do you have an emeritus role like a Tom Brokaw or, or what is the, the relationship like? If you don't mind me asking that. Well, it was designed to be exactly that. In fact, they called it the Brokaw clause when I signed the deal in 2012 uh, which carried me through 2016 as both the Olympic host and uh, one of the hosts of Sunday Night Football. And then, at my own discretion, I was free to either go to the Emeritus Clause or continue on a, a one-by-one basis, year-by-year or Olympics-by-Olympics. But I let them know far in advance that I intended uh, to activate the Emeritus Clause following the 2016 Rio Olympics. So that was all part of a larger plan. And I think with some regret, when I spoke with Outside the Lines, um, they focused on, not inaccurately, not unfairly, but a small sliver of my time at NBC, which was the little kerfuffle about uh, the Super Bowl in 2018. I had already left Sunday Night Football, but they asked me, to host the Super Bowl uh, between the Eagles and the Patriots on NBC because, as it happened, that game was just four days before the start of the Winter Olympics in South Korea, which was to be Mike Tirico's first as the primary host, and there was no way that he could have been in both places and done justice to either one. So they asked me to step in, and I thought in the spirit of our long relationship that I'd be more than happy to do that. 
But then when I made some comments about CTE and football and some other things critical of the NFL, no different, by the way, than things I'd said for many years going back, but for whatever reason, that kind of brought it to a tipping point in the minds of uh, some people at NBC, and they said, you can't host the Super Bowl. That was okay with me. I agreed with their assessment that I was probably not the right person any longer to host what, as they put it, is a day-long celebration of football. And my take on that was I have ambivalent feelings toward football to begin with, and I kind of roll my eyes at the idea of a day-long celebration of football because it's a year-long, 365, 24-7 celebration of football everywhere you look because football rules the sports landscape, and none of the networks really want to cross swords with the NFL. And I and a few others have tried to inject some element of skepticism or journalism into it, and <clears throat> there just apparently isn't much of a place for that. But having said that, I had no problem with their decision. It didn't mean that much to me to host the Super Bowl. I was only doing it as um, as a good soldier for NBC, and so it didn't bother me at all. Uh, but I understand that some people looked at it once I acknowledged that uh, to ESPN, and that became the focus of their story rather than the broader story, which was um, my long tenure at NBC and the fact that I tried to do, at least on occasion, some things that are different than most network sportscasters have done uh, in recent decades. Um, that was the broader focus, but... The narrower focus was the Super Bowl thing, and people took that and ran with it as if that was the reason I left NBC. And in truth, I was gearing up to uh, reduce my role, and then it became clear that the emeritus uh, aspect was not going to work out the way I had hoped because they just didn't have much interest in commentary or long-form interviews or a journalistic aspect, which I think I had effectively brought to it over the years. So no hard feelings. You know, you, you don't go to an Italian restaurant and then complain that they don't have sushi. Uh, NBC has been very great to me for 40 years. Uh, on balance, it's about 99% positive. Do you have occasional disagreements? Of course you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a thinking person with a mind of your own. So yeah, I had occasional disagreements. But in the big picture, I have nothing but appreciation and fondness for the people I worked for and with, and I'm sorry if some impression was left that I left on bad terms or that I have a beef with them. I don't have a beef with them. Uh, overwhelmingly, I have appreciation and gratitude toward them. Yeah, I get, and that's what I was curious about because I don't, I don't think I got that feeling from the the OTL piece. Um, so it, it basically is NBC and, and Bob Costas are just not together and you won't see Bob Costas on NBC in the next five years, right? I mean, that's where we're, we're at right now? Well, I, I won't, won't be doing any specific assignments for them. I can't say that I wouldn't be seen on NBC. You know, Jimmy Fallon or Seth Meyers asked me to be on their show or if somebody asked me to be on the Today Show for one reason or another, I could show up as a guest, but I'm no longer in their employ. Got it. I was curious about that, and, this, and that's why I wanted to talk to you because I had, I had so many things that I've watched over your career, and um, you just mentioned Jimmy Fallon, and uh, um, oh Myers. Yes, Myers, yes, I could not recognize picture his name, but I am a huge David Letterman fan, um, and I just think when you would go on that show, it was always interesting to me. What, 
What was your relationship like with Dave Letterman? Did, did you get a chance to know him well, or was it more strictly guest host type things? And just tell me a little bit about those, you know, prepping for those type of appearances. You hear about comedians who, you know, Steve Martin spends six months uh, on his seven-minute David Letterman appearance. Tell me a little bit about what it was like for you when you get that call, um, and just tell me a little bit about your, your experiences with Dave. Well, I'm not in Steve Martin's league. Uh, what you do is a pre-interview. Um, they touch upon some topics that uh, might be humorous or interesting. But with Dave, more so than any other late-night host, and I've been on with just about all of them at one time or another, Dave would just go with whatever popped into his head. So you couldn't count on him uh, going from topic one to topic two to topic three. That's just not the way it worked. It kept you on your toes because he might challenge you. He might be skeptical. He might throw in a line that you don't expect. Uh, and that was part of what made him great. Uh, sometimes I was a guest on his show, as you know, just coming out and sitting down as the guest. But other times I was involved in sketches like the late night baby routine and the elevator races and, and that sort of thing. And I think that really helped my career because it happened early on in the 1980s and showed a national audience uh, a different side of me, uh, a sense of humor and a reverent side. Not unlike what happened with me in the 70s at KMOX when I started out calling basketball games and I guess doing pretty well, but that was about all people knew about me until Jack Carney, the legendary morning host on KMOX, put me on and started bantering with me and it showed some personality and a different aspect to it. So uh, I'm grateful to David Letterman for what he did for my career. And then, <clears throat> pardon me, later on, when he went to CBS, um, he had control of the hour after his. And he offered that hour to me. And it was extremely flattering and very, very tempting. But NBC had just reacquired baseball. Um, they had the 96 Olympics coming up in Atlanta. Uh, they had other things that I was doing. It was a golden era in the NBA with Michael Jordan. Um, and although hey, I had just left my late night show on NBC because I just felt there were too many things on my plate, they made an offer when they heard about what David Letterman had offered. They said, look, you can do pieces on the NBC news magazines, the kind of pieces that don't exist anymore. Uh, pieces with some depth and they give you the time to flesh it out. So NBC made it almost impossible for me to leave, but I've always been grateful to Dave uh, for the kind of confidence he showed in me uh, in offering me that hour after his when he was just embarking on the CBS chapter of his career. And then when I turned it down, uh, Dave went with Tom Snyder, who of course is a legend in late night. So I think it turned out happily ever after for both, uh, for everybody involved. I don't think I'd ever heard that story, so I appreciate that. Um, what, what is your relationship with Dave? I mean, is there a chance that you could pop in and call him and see what he's up to, or is it more of a working relationship? No, it's not, it's, it's not like that. I, I don't think that most of the people, including people uh, who Dave enjoyed having as guests, that most of them have that much of a personal relationship with him. Um, it's just the way he was. He's a basically shy person, and I'm not going to uh, go any further than that because I don't know him well enough to go further than that, but he was always great to me in person. He helped my career immensely. I enjoyed being on with him. I think he's one of the most important figures in the history of television, um, but 
I never got close to him outside of his program, but I'm I'm happy to have been a small part of his program when I was. Yeah, you mentioned um, the late night baby, which I believe was an anniversary show. So I'll date yeah. myself. I was a child in that in that era, but that's I grew up literally taping Dave Letterman shows, watching him the next day. Obviously, I listened to you here at KMOX, and then watched you on NBC. But that that night also involved. So I have a Mount Rushmore, and this is a weird one, Bob. You'll probably find this hilarious. My Mount Rushmore of of basically favorite broadcasters or people that I. And really honored to talk to, so this is obviously a thrill. It's you, it's Dave Letterman, it's uh, Vince McMahon, and it's Howard Stern. That's that's my Mount Rushmore of people that I'm very interested in broadcasting. Well, I'm I'm happy to be grouped with David Letterman. But <laughs> you had Vince McMahon uh, on that one way back, way back then, and then who knew you guys would make history some 15 years later? I, I've always wanted to ask you about that interview. I know you've talked about it before. Did you realize he was ready to go into care? Because he's sort of in character on your HBO interview where he gets con- it gets contentious. Um, it was in the middle of the time where he had basically just won the wrestling war where, where he took over WCW. But he was doing right. a, a tawdry uh, storyline with Trish Stratus and, and you sort of started questioning him and he kind of came at you. Tell me a little bit about that night. Were you prepared for him to be that way? Did you realize somewhere in there that okay, we're getting the Vince McMahon character and not the real Vince McMahon, or did you think this is Vince McMahon? Well, I think there's substantial overlap between the real Vince McMahon and the Vince McMahon character, but what you left out there was that was when the XFL was on the air on NBC. We never would have had him on were it not for the XFL, which at least was trying to be passed off as some sort of legitimate sports venture, and it was on a mainstream network, and that was really what brought Vince McMahon to HBO. Um, I told him in the green room before uh, the program started, because I thought it was only fair, I said, look, uh, I'm going to ask you some straightforward but perhaps tough questions, and certainly he was not used to being interviewed in that way. I mean, everything is staged uh, when it comes to wrestling stuff, and I asked him, perfectly legitimate questions. I wouldn't change a bit of it. And he went off. Now, it was HBO, so none of it was edited or censored. And there were no commercials. And it was live. So it was live. It was scheduled for like 15 minutes. But people know when it's good television. So the producers are telling me in my ear, keep on going. And I think it went like 26, 27 minutes. And much of it was unrelenting tension. And people asked me afterwards, given, you know, what his history is and the veins in his neck were bulging out, and he turned crimson red, and he was jabbing a finger at me if I thought that he might slug me or, or whatever. And I actually never thought that. I thought he was trying in some sense to intimidate me, and when that wasn't successful, when I wasn't thrown off, I think that made him only angrier still. How, how did you stay, how did you keep your cool? And Because it, it, it did just, it, it blasted out of nowhere, and I mean, it really is one. I think you're great at moments because you're just go ahead, Vince. You know, do your thing. Jump, get get off. You know, he came up at his chair and he started waving his finger at you, and you just, you know, you just said, "Well, you know, I'll just, I'll just take this." Yeah, I think actually what set him off was when he came forward, and I realized, what am I going to do if I go back? <laughs> he can still come and get me if he wants to. If I go back in my seat, what does that prove? So the best body language, he came forward, and I came forward. And then we were almost chin to chin, and I smiled at him. 
And I think that that really set him off. You did have him on again, though, and it was much easier time. It was after the XFL had gone away. Um, you're, just do you have any sort of relationship with him? And, and is it weird that you've done some of the greatest interviews of all time uh, of, of anybody who does interviews, yet many people will remember this one more than any of them that you've done? I don't know if they remember it more, but it's among the handful, I guess, that they remember most. What strikes me as odd, uh, there was a... Uh, a documentary on ESPN called This Was the XFL. And some people took from that that the XFL was this lovely sort of pie-in-the-sky dream, and what a, what a shame that the dreamer Vince McMahon had his hopes dashed, and if only the world weren't aligned unfairly against him, it would have turned out just wonderfully. The product was crap. It was terrible. The football wasn't very good. Uh, I feel uh, no, uh, I don't want to say anything negative about the coaches and the players. They were just chasing a dream, so that's fine. I I didn't have any uh, criticism of them, but the quality of the football was not very good, and the presentation was idiotic. It it would have caused any reasonably bright 12-year-old to roll his or her eyes. It was trash. It was tawdry. And I called it that way from the beginning, before they ever played a game. I think I was on with Conan O'Brien. I said something to the effect of, you know, I've been saying all along, when will someone combine low-level high school football with the atmosphere of a tawdry strip club? And finally, Vince McMahon has taken my idea and run with it. So I don't understand all these people who think I was unfair to Vince McMahon or that I was some sort of get-off-my-lawn guy. How can you be right about every aspect of it? I was right about every aspect of it from the start. And somehow, in, in the, at least in the world of those who follow uh, the WWE and think Vince McMahon can do no wrong, I'm the villain in this. I don't know. <laughs> it, it just... There wasn't much to recommend the XFL. Now, the new version of it, uh, I keep an open mind. You know, if they take some of the head-banging stupidity of the WWE out of it, and it's a legitimate, functioning, second-tier football league uh, that people want to watch because they're football-obsessed and that may serve as some sort of quasi-farm system for the NFL, I, I keep an open mind. I wish them well. Yeah, and I don't want to. I know I said the Mount Rushmore comment. I'm I'm interested in him as the P.T. Barnum of our time more than anything. I'm not a huge fan, uh, but I do find him crazy um, that that way. Yeah, that's apt. <laughs> apt. One other night I wanted to ask you about is um, you were on on the uh, NBC broadcast of the NBA Finals uh, the week of the O.J. Simpson um, car chase. The the whole week of that, yes. and you worked you worked with O.J. Um, what was that night like for you and that week? Uh, someone that you had spent a lot of time with on the set, at the desk of NBC, uh, NFL Live. Um, surreal. What, what, what would you call it And as you look back at it some 25 years ago? Well, my first thought when the murders happened on a Sunday night and then word of it reached across the country uh, by Monday morning, my first thought, not knowing any of the particulars, was, oh, my God, what a horrible thing to have happen to O.J. and his family. And then, as details came our way in the next few days, 
then you had to grapple with the distinct possibility that he was involved, that there was criminal activity uh, on O.J.'s part. And then by Friday, when the Bronco chase happens, during Game 5 of the NBA Finals between the Knicks and the Rockets at Madison Square Garden, by then, even if you wanted to give O.J. the benefit of the doubt, you had to say to yourself rationally, an innocent man, especially an innocent man with resources and wherewithal and goodwill with the public, doesn't run. What is he doing? Uh, gun to his head. Sack of cash. Passport. Maybe making a run for it. None of that makes very much sense. Um, so by then, by that Friday, five days or whatever, after the murders, I'm beginning to think there's at least a distinct possibility, and I wasn't alone in thinking this, that O.J. committed the murders or was involved in the murders. Now, the game is going on, and the nation is transfixed by this Bronco chase. Um, it's, it's a low-speed chase along the 405 in Southern California, but the other networks are going uh, to it completely. We have to make a decision. It's not my decision to make. It's Dick Ebersol's as the head of NBC Sports. What are we going to do? So some of the time we split the screen, which must have been odd. Uh, Elijah Wan and Ewing on one side and the Bronco on the other. And then there were times when I had to transition between Marv Albert, who was calling the game, and Tom Brokaw, who was across the street in the studio at 30 Rock, um, who was updating us on what was happening. So it was kind of a, a balancing act in terms of tone because some sort of Shakespearean tragedy was playing out on the one hand, but then when you went back to Madison Square Garden, there's raucous cheering and an intense game going on. So it was surreal in that respect. And how, what was your relationship with him? I mean, did you did you have sort of a weird feel because you knew him well, or was it more of just a working, I work with that guy? No, I knew O.J. pretty well, uh, although we all have to say, or almost all of us have to say, we didn't know him nearly as well as we thought. Uh, and that's not just with regard to the murders. I did not know of the history of domestic disputes and domestic violence uh, with Nicole. I didn't know any of that. Um, there had been one episode that was known publicly, and they put on a unified front, he and Nicole, saying, oh, you know, it's just a little dispute on New Year's Eve that got out of hand. Um, and I guess we all accepted that, but I was not aware of a list of such incidents until all that stuff came out after the murders. But I, I knew O.J. at least superficially, I, I thought, reasonably well. We played golf together. We went to dinner many times. We were on the set together for, I think it was four years. Uh, he was always good company. You could joke around with him. He was the kind of guy who remembered the name of the kid who, who brought the coffee and the newspapers in the morning when you first arrived on the set. So I had favorable feelings about O.J. Not so anymore. I guess you don't keep in touch, I would I guess. No, the last time I saw him was in November of 1994. He had asked to see me, and he was in the L.A. County Jail. So I went, um, and A.C. Cowlings was there. Uh, the guy who was driving the Bronco, his former Bills teammate, and Robert Kardashian, who has since passed away, who was part of his defense team, actually picked me up at my hotel uh, in Los Angeles and drove me over to the L.A. County Jail that night. Uh, and so I did visit with, with O.J. along with A.C. and Robert Kardashian. And that's the last time I've seen him or spoken to him.
I obviously can't let you go without asking you about baseball. So if we have a couple more minutes here, um, I just want to get your thoughts on baseball. I watch uh, a lot of games, especially uh, outside of baseball, outside of St. Louis. I feel like the game, even though they try to make it faster, and I don't. Do you need to get that other line? <laughs> uh, no, go ahead. Okay, make sure it's not something way more important than this. Um, but baseball, it just feels still that we got starting pitchers that can only go five innings. A lot of nibbling. Uh, the strike zone seems tight. Uh, it's home run, you know, strikeout, and that's it. Tell me a little bit about what. Am I? Am I? Am I in a bad? spot thinking that the baseball is kind of in trouble or or do you see that as you watch games uh it just feels very laborious watching baseball these days for me and i'm a longtime fan and i know you are too it it can be it can be i've said this so many times that people can probably recite it for me baseball is supposed to have and for most of its history has had a pleasing leisurely pace it's not supposed to have a lethargic pace last year for the first time There were more strikeouts than hits in the major leagues. This year, that will happen again, and the gap will be greater than it was a year ago. Uh, When you have that many strikeouts, it only stands to reason, even if the at-bat doesn't end in a strikeout or a walk, you've got more deep counts. You've got more of the game where the ball is not in play. And because teams have figured out through the analytics that it's all about launch angle, and if we get six hits but three of them are homers, we can win the game, you're seeing fewer baseball plays. You're seeing fewer attempts at stolen bases, hit-and-run plays, taking the extra base. Uh, The kind of plays, even the shifts, take some exciting baseball plays away uh, because the ball's hit right into the shift, or there's nobody there to make a play if they foil the shift hit the ball up the middle, and maybe maybe that would have been an Ozzie Smith play diving to his left, but there's nobody there, you know? So a lot, of, a lot of what made baseball exciting beyond somebody throwing 100 miles an hour or beyond someone hitting a ball 500 feet, nothing wrong with that if that's a punctuation or a rarity. If it becomes commonplace, it loses some of its impact. But there's so much that's appealing about baseball beyond that. And I'm not saying that's gone now. But it's reduced, and that's not for the better. Yeah, I mean, the attendance uh, is down, um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I wouldn't just say it's the baseball play, but, um, yeah, I mean, it just it makes me, I don't know, I like being at the game, but watching it on TV or actually working one like we do uh, sometimes weekly, they just seem like they go on forever. So I, I hope there's something to fix it. I don't know if clocks work or, you know, three pitcher pitch, you know, relievers, uh, three batter, you know, reliever batters, but... Um, I know they're trying, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, they are trying. They're well aware of the problem, and they're trying some things out in the low minor leagues, and I applaud them for that. I'm in favor of a pitch clock with nobody on base. I think it's problematic with someone on base, but with nobody on base, come on, let's get moving. We uh, Lastly, we have a St. Louis audience most of the time for this podcast. I do see stats that people listen around the world, so... Uh, I appreciate Around that. the world. Oh, I've seen there's, there's somebody in Zimbabwe who is intensely interested in this conversation. Bob, Someone I, in Madrid who can't get enough of it. I will tell you now, I do see stats of people from Australia and even London. I do get that. I, so I will send you the screenshot mm-hmm. of that. So you are talking to a worldwide audience today. Are you stronger <laughs> in Sydney or in Melbourne? 
Uh, I don't know if it goes that deep. I think it's just the country. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, I do get a stat. Actually, I have a, I have two buddies who live in Australia. I think that's that, that's why those are. <laughs> so so that's pretty much your Australian demographic. Two buddies. But I do know they love their. If they move to Monaco. You have no one in Australia, but then you're 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 in good shape in that little kingdom. Uh, hey, I'm all I'm all for you know world domination of podcasts. That's my my goal here, and I appreciate you. You, you realize, by the way, as much as I've enjoyed this conversation, you realize that the next census will reveal that one in every three or four Americans has a podcast. I I do realize this, and it makes me a little sad because I don't. I think you remember I started with a cable access show, way way way. Yes, I was on it about twenty years ago. It was a highlight was a highlight for me as well yeah yeah i I always thought i was a little ahead of my time and and then it's now everyone has it's basically that's what podcasting is everyone has a cable access show so but um i appreciate without the pictures that's true and how many people could get bob costas to come on theirs right i mean how many do you do a year let's 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 ask that if i if i did every one i was asked to do i'd probably do a hundred a year i was i swear this story is true and i say this with with no, I'm not dismissing the person. It's just kind of, you shrug your shoulders. This is the world. I went to a game at Yankee Stadium last year as a fan. And I had some pretty good seats. So there was a, an usher who took me and my friends to our seat. And the usher, a very nice young man who I would take to be in his early 30s, um, having a pleasant conversation with him. And then he hands me his card and he says, I'd like to have you on my podcast. <laughs> what, what, what in the world is this guy's podcast about? And who is listening to the podcast? Poss- possibly people in Australia. Maybe he's got it's some... It's a st- rhetorical question, I realize. And for all I know, the guy's a genius, and his podcast is the most interesting of all the podcasts out there. But there's, there's, cert- there certainly is an overwhelming number of podcasts out there. And I have no idea who can possibly listen to them all, or even a substantial portion of them. See, I love, I find six or seven that I like. Here we are, aren't we? Well, I, Bob, I was going to embarrass myself and just say, we should do one weekly together. And we'll we'll get another restaurant sponsor here in St. Louis. And what do you you say? I'm just going to go embarrass you. You want to do that? No? I think think if we actually do it weekly, it will wind up being spelled W-E-A-K-L-Y. I haven't got that much strong material to go 52 times a year. You do. Um, but my lead-up was to the Blues going to the Stanley Cup uh, Finals. Yeah, I knew it was going somewhere. Okay, I was trying to get to this point. Uh, and you spent a lot of time in St. Louis, uh, a lot of time at KMOX. I, I know they were on KXOK for a while, I guess, while you were here. But anyway, um, you know, we, we all think of you as a St. Louis, and I know you grew up in New York, mm-hmm. and I think you even say, you know, it's it's really your adopted hometown. What? Give me, your th- give me your thoughts and just the, the excitement uh, of, of a Bob Costas for what's happening I can tell you, it really. I was talking to your son, and I just said, you know, I know he lives, he doesn't live here anymore. And I said, what, what, what are you feeling? He's like, yeah, you know, it's great, um, but you know, I said, when I went to Game Six the other night, I, I got the. It's more for me to watch uh, a Bernie Federko and a Bob Plager and just these people that have been with this franchise forever. Um, your thoughts on just this uh, this magical run that they're on. I think it's terrific, especially when you consider where they were earlier in the season. Nobody would have expected this. And, you know, the Blues against the Bruins, that has some character to it. It has some history to it. I imagine you'll hear uh, both on NBC and on the radio broadcast, 
you'll hear references not just to the Stanley Cup final of 1970 and Bobby Orr's flying through the air final goal that ended it. You'll hear about the history between St. Louis and um, and Boston, the Red Sox uh, and the Cardinals in 67, the Red Sox and the Cardinals in 2004. You'll hear about all that sort of stuff. You'll hear about Stan Musial and Ted Williams the, in 1946. They'll work all that stuff in there. And, you know, I love sports history, so I'm good with it. I was, uh, I've said that the, the Rams lost to the Patriots in 2001, and it began really the Boston renaissance. Uh, the Celtics right. have won, the Patriots have won, the Red Sox. The Blues yeah. could, could end that and create another curse for Boston here in 2019. That's my hope. That's, that's an interesting storyline, and I should have remembered, of course, uh, the, the Patriots against the Rams, uh, a Super Bowl that still has St. Louis fans scratching their heads. Uh, it was almost a given that the Rams would, would win that one, and maybe that was the beginning of Belichick's uh, establishing his genius status. It, it was, but Spygate, too course they, they cheated <laughs> as they yeah said. well there's there's always that well i uh i appreciate your time as always and i do know that i'm sure uh people come up to you in the stands every every time you're at a ball game and ask you to do a podcast so i really do appreciate you always uh taking some time uh for me uh like i said i'm a huge fan you're on my mount rushmore with two other people you're not real big fans of but um, <laughs> i really do it's it's just always a thrill that you uh you take some time and that we're colleagues now i get to work like just seeing you put up pull out your scorebook and i'm like hey let me help you with that you know i feel very good about uh, this so i appreciate your time um uh, thanks a lot bob thanks brad we'll talk always a pleasure. we'll talk next week <laughs> well, perhaps not. Maybe next year. We'll do this yearly, I, but I appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. All right, annually is good. <laughs> always enjoy chatting with Bob Costas, one of the greats. And he's always been good to me, so hopefully you enjoyed that. I always have a lot more to ask him, but, you know, 30 minutes is enough. So appreciate my time with Bob Costas. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you're enjoying Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Masses Restaurants. Five locations in St. Louis, stlmasses.com is where you can find those locations and menus and make reservations. They are my title sponsor. You know what I really like doing on Wednesday night? They have a they have a karaoke contest out in Winghaven. Now, Swinghaven is, is known here in St. Louis for being a fun place to go, but karaoke out there at that location, they have a lot of fun out at the Winghaven location. So if you're a, if you're a youngster out there or an oldster and you want to go have some fun, they're more of a, a a fun atmosphere, I would say. You know, the, the Baldwin location, nice and dark and intimate. They're all, they're all different. So I say just try all five. The food's great at all of them, though. You're going for a date. You're going out for a party. Masses restaurants, five locations in St. Louis. I did mention there will be some more sponsors coming your way. I appreciate folks contacting me. So this is very exciting news. And uh, hopefully, if you want to be part of this show as well, you can do that. Just uh, find me on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. Here's the pitch with Brad. Instagram, I'm all over the place. Uh, but I appreciate uh, sponsors checking in, and I appreciate you listening. From Australia, I'm looking right now at the Russian Federation. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but it, it's not America. I, I know that much. So uh, thanks to Bob for coming on, and thanks to him for having some fun with me here on this podcast. That's going to do it for this time. Hope you uh, enjoyed it, and I'll check you next time. <laughs>